Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am here with a very good friend of mine, Matt Bronstein, who uh, plays the horn in the Axiom Brass Quintet currently. Uh, he's had a bit of a, uh unusual path to where he's at, and so I thought it'd be awesome to have him on the podcast to talk about where he's gone, how he's gotten there, and um, some of the challenges along the way. So first of all, thank you for being on the show. It's my pleasure, Ryan. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, this is cool. Matt and I went to Tanglewood together in 2010 and uh, had a great time. Probably too much fun, but that's for another time. And uh, <laughs> um, it's just cool to have the opportunity to come back, for me, to come back in this capacity and sort of uh, just be able to highlight him and, again, some of his journey. Uh, I think we'll just start with the normal place to start. Uh, as far back as you feel is relevant to say why you chose the horn and kind of your educational path so we get a little bit grounded in uh, where you're coming from. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I grew up in Southern California, and um, naturally, being a child who grows up in Southern California, um, I fell in love with the movies. And uh, when I was... In middle school, when I started in sixth grade, my mom forced me to do a beginning band. I didn't want to do beginning band, but my brother did it. And she said that um, the only other option was to do like electives, but it was a different elective every like three or four weeks. She felt like it was a waste of time to just spend that amount of time learning something new just in, in like three or four weeks. So um, I chose to do beginning band and my teacher was a French horn player. The beginning band teacher was a French horn player. And she asked all the students to pick three instruments that we wanted. And she would do kind of a very quick test to see which instrument would work for us. And of course, as every little kid wants to do, I wanted to play drums. So drums was my <laughs> percussion was my first choice. And then I was, French. I was the same exact way. I just <laughs> wasn't, I wasn't good enough. So they didn't let me. Yeah, I guess my rhythm wasn't great. Um, <laughs> Then I uh, I chose French horn second, but honestly, I didn't know much about the French horn. I just knew that my teacher played it, and I was a huge suck-up uh, as a kid. So I figured if I picked French horn, I would get an A in that class. So I picked French horn, and then third was um, saxophone, which we won't get into that, but I'm glad that uh, my teacher <clears throat> had me pick uh, French horn. Um, picked it up and just was able to just play on it uh, relatively well within the first few years of playing. And, um, when I went into high school, my high school band teacher was, who was a huge inspiration to, um, my current and past musical life. Um, yeah, uh, I had another, there was another French horn player in that class who was also very, very good at my age who ended up going to Curtis, uh, for school. Um, <clears throat> we ended up doing BUTI together in 2005 um, but when I applied for college, when I started applying for college, I initially, um, <laughs> initially my mindset was I was going to use French horn to get into a university and then transfer to another degree. As so many people told me that that was a, a pretty much more possible, um, 
scenario than just applying to a university for anything else other than music and getting in. Um, and then at the last minute, after I applied to a few different schools, um, I thought, well, maybe I should apply to Chicago College of Performing Arts. And because another friend of mine had applied and I found out that Dale Clevenger was the teacher there. And uh, I think I was already on like an audition tour in New York and kind of just decided at that time that <clears throat> wanted to apply and called the admissions and they said, here's Dale's number, call Dale and see if you can set up an audition. We can fill out the application stuff later. <laughs> so I'm in New York city. I'm 18 years old and I have to call Dale Clevenger. Um, <laughs> it was a little terrifying. He said, yeah, just, uh, can you hit Chicago on your way back to LA? Um, you can come to my house and play for me. And now that was just one more thing that added to the, Oh, now I have to go to his house and play for him at his house. So we, we planned a trip back to uh, through Chicago on the way back to LA and went to his house and to make matters worse, his wife at the time, Alice was recovering from chemo. So she was asleep upstairs while I was doing my audition, having just recovered from chemo. And he, Oh my God. He's like, yeah, Alice is upstairs. So, um, we won't play much. I just want to hear kind of what you have. I remember playing the first phrase of Mozart's fourth concerto and we, I didn't play anything else. That was my audition was the first phrase of Mozart's fourth concerto. And he said, that'll be fine. And yeah. And I, I, again, I thought, well, I'll go to Roosevelt. I don't know much about it, but I'll go and I'll transfer. And within the first month of studying with him, everything changed. My, my passion for the instrument changed. My outlook on kind of where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do had completely changed. And from that point on, and I think Dale has a huge, huge part of that decision, but the decision to just be a professional horn player in any capacity yeah. And then so you, sorry, so you finished in 2010, right? That's when you graduated, same as me, right? Yeah, I graduated in 2010. And then you were going to, you went to Tanglewood. I know you went the next year, I'm pretty sure, in 2011, right? Yeah, I did a bunch of summer festivals. That was always, even just growing up when I was in seventh grade, I think my mom just wanted me to be busy all the time. Um, so over the summers, um, I would do some sort of festival. I did a, a festival at Pepperdine University, a Young Musicians Foundation summer festival for two summers when I was younger, like middle school, maybe early high school. My first teacher, um, Dr. David Hoover, who teaches at, um, or used to teach at Cal State Northridge, he just retired, congratulations if he's listening. Um, he uh, taught summer, uh, taught horn at uh, the Idlewild Festival, right. um, which is where I met our mutual friend, Colio. For the first time, 17-year-old <laughs> Colio Plachkov was fantastic. Um, and so I did those. I did that for two summers. Uh, and then I did BUTI in 2005. And then once college rolled around, I was kind of already in that mode of like, all right, I'm just going to keep applying to summer festivals and try to do what I can. So I did Round Top in 2008, uh, Music Academy of the West in 2009, which was really nice because it was close to home. Sure, yeah, um, yeah. And then Tanglewood, yeah, uh, TMC, 2010, 2011. And then kind of around that time I was just doing, then I was actually like working over the summer, gigging with professional groups, playing with Grant Park. Um, I was playing with a chamber festival called the Midsummer 
uh, Midsummer Music Festival in Door County, Wisconsin. I did Spoleto as well in 2012 or 2013. So just trying to keep playing as much as possible and, and continuing to network. And honestly, the mindset wasn't networking. It was just, it was just fun. Like yeah, my, my yeah. summer festivals are some of my greatest memories, especially Tanglewood was just, I want to go back almost every summer just to. Yeah. It's a special place. Weddings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing for me. And I just wanted to try to paint this picture because for me, it was just like the thing that you do or the thing that you try to do. I mean, we are fortunate to get in, but I didn't really think much about it. I wasn't like, what is this opportunity? I was just like, you know, you go to like, you could hopefully get into Tanglewood. And my first year I got in, I didn't think I belonged. I, I've been, you know, open about that kind of thing. It's just, I'm trying to paint this picture that basically that was the track, right? That you were talking about with working with Dale, like right out of the gate. You were like, oh, this is what I want. And so you were pretty much thinking orchestral, orchestral career was where you were headed probably, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when I when I started studying with Dale, like, Within the first year, he's like, you're going to be a principal horn player somewhere. That was, I mean, he told me that several times and that was my mindset. That was my goal. Um, whether or not I wanted it for me, I wanted it for him just as bad. You know, I wanted to be there. I wanted to be in that position for him Yeah, you know, to have his, his support and his, you know, for him to be proud of me, almost father figurely, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's an important point for me too, is, I mean, I feel like I made that decision for myself when I was young, but then there's a certain amount of, well, people have invested this time in me and not that I need to, but I would like to like, you know, make them proud or whatever. So what was your, I I don't know this. I don't know the answer to the question. What was your audition track record like around that time? I mean, I think if I remember right, you were doing well, I don't know if you had won anything at that point, but you were doing well in auditions. Yeah, I started taking auditions, I think, in 2008, probably halfway through my college career and um, started off slow, started off kind of with the lower auditions, kind of the regional groups. And honestly, I don't remember taking very many auditions before I started doing well. But um, my first audition that I advanced in was um, it seems like one of those things that you like you're hammering away, you're hammering away. And then as soon as you advance one time, you advance in every audition for the rest of your life. Like that's how it felt for me, at least at that point where, um, my senior year, I auditioned for the Grand Park Music Festival, um, assistant principal position. And, um, I advanced to the finals and it was just me and one other person. But the week of the finals was also my senior recital. And this process actually helped me kind of create my audition process for the future. Uh, I, I asked Dale what I should do, what I should focus on, because I was preparing the Brahms horn trio on natural horn, which is, you know, not, I don't play natural horn, but I had studied natural horn a little bit with my first teacher. And I said, but it's just a recital for my college degree. Like, it's not a professional job. Should I focus on the professional job, which is what I'm trying to get to? And Dale's mindset was, you know how all the music goes. You know this music for the audition. You've learned it. You've studied it. You've lived it for four years studying with me. You don't need to beat it over the head and, and, and get past that point of knowing it too much almost. Um, which he didn't say that, but that's kind of a, a, mind, a mindset that I've created. But he said, work on, work on the recital your chops will be in shape. Um, and then, you know, 
a few days before the audition. I had, there were like a few days in between the audition and the, um, my recital and the audition. He said, then kind of just re-familiarize yourself, work on entrances, beginning the excerpts, getting in that mindset and then go. And, um, I ended up not, not winning, but I felt really good about the audition. And, um, from, from that point on, I kind of developed this idea where, depending on who you are and how you can handle your adrenaline, um, that adrenaline is a huge, huge, um, either hindrance or, um, benefit. And I would approach auditions where I would make sure that I'm in shape. I was doing fundamentals and I was, I was, you know, making sure that whatever I could do in my, whatever I wanted to do in my head would be able to come out through my lips and my air. Right. And, um, I would focus on excerpts that I didn't know very well. And then I would kind of just play beginnings of excerpts that I knew really well, um, leading up into the week, I would spend maybe two to three weeks preparing for an audition. And pretty much after Grant Park, I advanced, I think in every audition I took, um, including, let's see, uh, Dallas third horn. I was in the finals, um, Montreal, uh, I actually, um, won the audition in Montreal. Uh, there were four rounds in one day and I had to play almost half, if not more than half of Adagio and Allegro for two straight rounds and then play a bunch of excerpts in section, uh, playing. So I won that audition, but didn't, didn't get hired based on the trials. But yeah, Dallas Third Horn, Dallas Principal. I was the only person to advance the first time before um, David uh, Cooper was. He had already won the Third Horn audition, so he wasn't able to take the first Principal Horn in Dallas audition. Um, I was the only person to advance in the the first Seattle Principal audition from the prelims. Um, I advanced multiple times in the Boston Third Horn auditions, um, the LA Principal audition. I had just switched horns two weeks prior for my trials with Montreal and I advanced past the prelims and played all the excerpts in the, um, semis, but I, the last excerpt was the Schoenberg chamber symphony. And that, I think I played it technically well, but I think they could tell that I'd never performed it before. And yeah, I just didn't ask to do it again. Cause I felt like if I had played that well, I would have advanced to the finals for LA principal, but <clears throat> cause the, the proctor even said to me like, man, that was really good. So close, but, I didn't want to ask you to Schoenberg again because I figured I couldn't have done it better than I did it before. I just <laughs> felt uncomfortable playing it. But yeah. Yeah. So I had, I mean, I had a ton of success with auditions. Um, felt comfortable, felt really, I enjoyed auditioning. Um, another, another idea that I had whenever I was auditioning was to just enjoy the space that you're in. How many times do you get to go to these halls and play by yourself in these famous, beautiful concert halls. So I would always try when I'm walking in, even if I was forcing myself to do it, if I was nervous, I would just walk around and look, I would walk and look around and, and get to really enjoy the fact that I get to play on this stage where all of these people have played by myself, regardless of who's listening, regardless of what's on, you know, what's at stake, what's on the line. I get to play at these halls by myself. Um, and then before every excerpt, this was the last thing I would do. I would just force myself to smile. I could feel a change immediately um, mm. inside. I could feel whatever hormone is produced. I, I could just, I could feel it. And I always played better when I smiled before I played. 
than um, if I was tense and serious and really trying to go at it. Did you try to practice that way too, or did you just do it in the audition? I don't, I don't think I ever practiced that. I think it just, cause that was another mindset. That was our, another, another approach for me was the spontaneity of the performance makes it better. That's why, that's another reason why I kind of developed that idea where I wouldn't sit in a practice room and practice something over and over the exact same way in the exact same scenario for six straight months, because that kind of hinders my ability to adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you go to auditions where the room is 20 degrees colder than normal, or you have, you know, Boston, you have to walk up a ton of stairs to get to the hall and, or any other scenario that you're just not prepared to, um, you're not, you're not prepared to do. So I think the spontaneity of the performance kind of was included, you know, the smiling was included with that of just kind of, I might not be prepared. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a bit how I used to do it. And to an extent, I feel like when it worked, it worked, you know? Uh, but like, it just takes a ridiculous amount of trust in your own ability to be able to pull that kind of thing off, you know? And I don't, I don't play like, I don't practice or play like that at all anymore. Yeah. Me I neither. Mean, I, me neither. Yeah. I feel that I could do that with greater effect because of the way I practice now, but I just like wouldn't do that because like, I don't know. It's, it's interesting how my mindset has shifted from that, but I totally understand. You want to know why? Why? It's because we're getting old, man. That's why. True. That's probably, <laughs> it. I probably a lot smarter and it, it's like more work involved. Maybe I just didn't want to do work back then, but yeah, I, I'm glad you went through all of that because me knowing where we're headed in this conversation, it's just like, it's, it's insane that you were basically primed. You were right there. Mm-hmm. about ready to hit anything and spend the rest of your career doing that thing. You know what I mean? Like the thing yeah. that we all are hoping to do. Well, and, um, and my, my, like my dream job was, was the CSO principal horn audit right. principal horn spot. Right. And, um, David and I are good friends and we met each other on the audition trail where we would basically always be in the finals or like be up, we'd see each other and be like, Oh, Dave's here. All right. Like, Oh, Matt's here. Yeah. We're, you know, this is going to be, and we've joked about this a lot where like I would, uh, I would advance in some auditions that he wouldn't, we would both be in the finals. And I would, I, you know, I won't, we were both in back-to-back finals together in Montreal and Dallas, uh, third horn. And, um, I won the Montreal, which was the first one. And then I saw that we were in the finals together in Dallas. I was like, all right. And I mean, now it's his turn. And honestly, the best audition I've ever played in my life, the best audition round, I personally believe, was my Dallas third horn um, final round. And I've never had the mindset before where I was going to win the audition. Like that was, I won, like that's me. And when they announced David, I was like, wow, that, okay, well that says a lot <laughs> about his playing too because um, right. I-, I felt really confident. Um, but my my upbringing and everything was leading, kind of the trajectory was leading straight into Dale's retirement and that position being opened. And I was just, I was ready for it. You know, that was my, my whole, my dream. And I, I I would like to think that Dale at least had a, the thought that that could also potentially happen based on our relationship and based on um, where he felt like my playing was at the time, not saying I would have won the first audition, but um, if I thought you were, yeah. Because we just don't know, right? We never know what could have happened. But I think it's, yeah, just knowing that you were in it. Like, you were competitive. It was just, you were 
your competitiveness wasn't just displayed and I can play really well, but you're doing very, very well in auditions. Like there's many jobs that I feel like I'm qualified or could do really well at right now or at certain points, but like my audition track record is not reflective of that. So some of it is like self-belief, but for you, you even had the validation of various auditions uh, going well. And so. And also play, I mean, playing with professional groups on a regular basis too, playing with, playing with the CSO, playing with the Lyric Opera, uh, pretty frequently. Um, I even remember once, uh, one year after a Boston symphony audition, I got asked to fly out and play with the Boston pops Esplanade or whatever for a concert, mm-hmm. which I, I live in Chicago. Why would they fly me out to Boston? But it's kind of having that experience of people like want me to play. It doesn't matter where I live, which was an awesome, awesome feeling. So then take us, take us to the <laughs> next stage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause like, right. yeah, it's, um, yeah. So I, I think it it was a combination of so many things that I can't really put my finger on all of them because, you know, when, when they talk about experiments, you talk about changing one variable at a time. And there were just so many variables that had changed all at once that it's really difficult to find out what happened. But, um, I started experiencing, um, not discomfort or pain, just several things. One was which I felt like I was putting the mouthpiece on a different setting pretty much every time. I couldn't remember where the setting was. I couldn't remember where it felt comfortable. What's that? Um, sorry. What's the time frame, real quick? Well, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah, just to ground so, us. So I started noticing issues around 2011, actually at Tanglewood, um, my mm-hmm. second summer. Um, there was just one note that I was really struggling with, and I couldn't tell if it was the horn or what because I had just changed horns. And um, after that, I went to, I think I went to Spoleto that same summer. No, I went to Spoleto the following summer. I did a bunch of other music festivals. I was playing with the CSO kind of in between 2012, 2013, or 2011, 2012, playing with Lyric. And I just slowly started to feel this, um, like I didn't know how to play almost, where I, I couldn't. There were certain things, I, certain notes I couldn't play. I was losing control of the middle register. I would be falling off notes um, that I was trying to sustain. Pretty much missing notes when I was missing almost exclusively from below. Um, and I just didn't feel like the setting where I put my mouthpiece was in the same place every time. I couldn't find where it was. It, it just never felt comfortable. Um, and there was one moment in particular I remember that was kind of the 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 low the ultimate low point which was I had been gigging and gigging and gigging all summer long and then I did a music festival in Washington State uh, with Dale called Marrowstone and he got called to um, can't remember if he got called or he was supposed to play at Ravinia with the CSO doing the planets and. Um, he said, well, no, I can't do it, but, um, I have somebody who can. And he said that I could do it. So I basically flew red eye into Chicago, did a 10 a.m. rehearsal, a 7:30 concert, and then flew back to Washington state to finish the festival. And I remember waking up the next morning and I could not buzz. I couldn't create a sound on the mouthpiece. I just couldn't buzz. And, um, I didn't really know what to do. And I basically just like, I called my mom was just like bawling, you know, one of those, that, that ugly kind of yeah. snot going everywhere. Like <laughs> I just couldn't, I couldn't understand what was happening because there was no pain. Like I wasn't in pain and people always talk about, well, injuries, you're going to be in pain. And I just, I couldn't figure it out. 
Um, over the next few years, honestly, I saw specialists. I saw, um, I saw uh, a lot of like, you know, just having had the, the career that I'd had before, I had a lot of people that I could reach out to professionals that I could reach out to and ask for advice. And that ultimately might've been worse because I just, I got so many different answers back, um, that I didn't know who to trust. Um, I, I flew to Boston and saw a, a dystonia specialist. Um, I talked to a few neurophysiologists. I saw a functional neurologist who's basically a chiropractor who specializes in, um, you know, brain function and, uh, the neurology. Um, and I just could never really get a, a definitive answer as to what happened. I still, to this day, um, couldn't really figure it out, but, um, and I, I, I'm seeing more and more of my colleagues going through things that I went through and, and very, very similar things that I went through. Um, and it's, it's heartbreaking. It's something that people don't really talk about because they're afraid that if they say that they're injured, let's say they make a recovery, they're never going to get hired again. And that's something yeah. that I've been very upfront about with everybody I play with. Um, and, and even when I was coming back, like when I stopped playing, I basically said, you know, I, I, all of my closest friends in the music world, all the people even who hired me knew that I was going through something and were actively trying to help me. So they knew that I was injured. And I knew that if there was a possibility, I trusted that if there was a possibility that I could come back and I contacted them, that they would hire me again based on my reputation as a player in the past, my, my, and probably even more so my, um, just personality and relationship with them on a, on a non-professional level. Sure. But it was, it was really hard. Um, I psychologically, I wasn't prepared for it because I felt like I was, you know, on that trajectory to be one of the best and, um, to go, you know, they say it's a, a long fall, I'm not saying that I was at the top by any means, but from where I was to where I had become, you know, where I had gotten to, um, in terms of the fall, it was such a large gap that I didn't think was possible that, um, I shut down for a long time. I, I didn't, I basically shut out a lot of my music friends. I didn't really talk about music. I still listen to classical music because that's something I, I don't think I could ever get rid of. But um, a lot of times I'd be listening and just like crying <laughs> and listening. Yeah. And um, I'd listen to old recordings of myself and just be like, man, like listen to what I used to be able to do. And um, yeah, I, I bartended for four or five years, four years, maybe I worked in catering for a little bit and, that was a really nice part of period of my life where I kind of learned who I was outside of being a musician. Yeah. Which we, you know, we're so, we're so invested and we're so just enveloped in this world where we, you know, we do it every single day, every single day for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And it's just so hard to separate that. It's like being in a relationship. You know, I wrote a, I wrote an article for, um, this thing, this magazine, this project that, um, we, my colleagues and I and Axiom Brass have created called Brass Legacy. And one of the things I, I wrote an article about my injury. And one of the things I said was, you know, I felt like I was in a relationship and my horn broke up with me, you know, like that's, yeah. that's kind of how it felt. Um, but 
then I got to learn who I was away from music and, you know, the perspective. I don't want to go into all the tropes and everything, but, but just that idea of like perspective changed a lot. Um, I made a lot of friends that were not musicians, which was really nice. Um, but the place that I bartended at was right down the street from the symphony. It was right down the street from the opera. So, and a lot of those guys would come in. So I still had that, I still like a small foot in the door. I still had that connection. Um, but it honestly made me sad every time I saw them because yeah. it reminded me of a life that I could have had that was taken away. And still, you know, the, the closure thing is the thing that still eludes me and the thing that has frustrated me for so long. If I tore something in my lip and I felt the pain and I could say, yeah, it's a tear and I could never play horn ever again. I would feel much better than I think I felt for a long time where I just didn't know what it was. And there was no explanation as to kind of what led to it. I can only guess that it was some combination of overuse, um, equipment changing, and maybe some long, um, long-term um, issues with tension and pressure when I play. Yeah. Um, I also played Einsatzen, so I played with the, the mouthpiece kind of dug into my, my bottom lip, which might've led to some, maybe some more pressure that I use, like had to use in order to create the vibration or something. I'm not sure. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing it, man. I, I think first and foremost, um, it's just important that we in general own our stories, I think. But then on top of that, that being willing to share, even if it helps what one person understand or be able to like see something that could be happening or know that they're not alone. I think it's, it can be a very valuable thing. So I appreciate you being, I know that you are open about it. So this is not necessarily a big thing on your side of it, but every time you would share, it's reliving what that is. I did the same thing with Greg Hicks, you know, and yeah. Greg, Greg like just stopped. He sold his horn enough. And so he said, every time he tells it, like he's okay, but people react because it's the first time they've heard it. So exactly. I get a lot of those responses of, of, Oh, you're so brave for telling your story. You're, you know, you're, we're so proud of that, that you can do that. And that happened when I wrote that article. And to me, I've been living it for now eight years. It's, and I, and like you said, I'm very open about it. I'm not afraid to share it. Um, and to me, it was, it was just one more, it wasn't even like the therapeutic thing anymore. It was just kind of getting it out there. So people understand that it's happening to other people. It's not just them. Um, uh, you know, I wish, I wish there was like concrete advice that I could give in that scenario. Cause I would say, reach out to the people you're, you're closest with and see if they can, you know, figure it out. But I did that and it was, uh, I got so many, diff- pulled in so many different directions that, uh, you know, that it's difficult. It's really hard to know where to go with that. But I think knowing that other people have gone through it and that at least some people have come through on the other side, um, can be, all that you need. I mean, for me, like I thought, I thought it was dystonia for a long time. Leon Fleischer was a huge, and he just passed away. Um, but he was a huge influence on my mindset of, well, if I have dystonia, I can, I can beat this. You know, I, I don't, I can't definitively say that I had dystonia or still have it. Um, I personally believe that I have maybe some, you know, with every disease or condition, there are different extremes. Mm-hmm. I, I think that I, I have some form of it. Um, maybe if it's just smaller than uh, others, cause I can still play. Um, but yeah, seeing people like Leon Fleischer and other people who are really able to come back from a, 
a debilitating condition that people said there's no way you can do this and then be able to do it. And, and, you know, um, just nice to know that there are success stories. It's not a 0% chance. Yeah. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is just how you mentally get into a space that you're going to keep trying. You know, I know you took some time away. How do you come back to the space of like, well, if I try, there's no guarantee I'll get back to where I was. Right. And then, so you're just like, it's possible to maybe feel like you're going to be living in your own shadow for like the rest of your life. And but how, so how do you do this? How do you, what mentality, how do you have to shift your perspective into something that where this can be a healthy, productive outlet for you and it's not going to cause you, you know, angst or anxiety and that you can get, eventually get to a point where you're performing regularly with a group like a brass quintet, which is significantly more playing than an orchestra will ever be, and to be able to be successful and feel confident and comfortable, just like kind of what's the road basically back? Um, <clears throat> I think for me, I personally have a very difficult time with personal accountability with doing things that um, only affect me. If if there's something that affects other people, I have a tremendous amount of guilt almost like that's how I operate is just, I'll do, I'll get anything done as long as it is somebody else is relying on me. Mm -hmm. I hate feeling like I'm letting people down, but in terms of myself, I have a very difficult time motivating myself for things that are beneficial for me or things that I want to do. That's why a lot of times I'll tell other people that I'm planning on doing something. So now they know that I have, you know, now I have to do that. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so I had had a job bartending, which gave me the luxury to be able to see what would happen after, I think, four, three years of basically not playing. I might have played maybe for a week or two, a few times over those um, three years. But in those two weeks, I said, oh, it's not better. I'm going to stop again, which when you're not playing for a year or two years and you play for two weeks, it's not going to get better right away anyway. But I was like, oh, it's still whatever happened before is still here. Um for those who know me, um, and for those who don't know me, I guess, um, I'm a pretty big mama's boy. I'm a, a younger brother. I'm a, a younger child. And, uh, my mom has been hugely supportive of pretty much anything I do, any career path I want to take, any, any decision I want to make. She's there to support me hundred percent. Um, she told me, she remember one time I was visiting home and she pulled me aside and asked if I was playing horn again. Um, and I said, no, she basically was like, listen, I support what you're doing right now. Um, however, I know that if you don't give it one more chance and you don't see this through that you're going to, you're going to be upset the rest of your life, knowing, not knowing whether it was a possibility. Right. And that kind of was my mindset all along. We're like, at some point I have to give it another shot. I just have to see if, if what happened was a fluke and I can get back or, um, or, uh, you know, I spend a year, two years working on it and it doesn't work. And I put it away and I say, okay, well, that's, that's the closure I needed. Um, in terms of the accountability, um, I found that my, I remember my first teacher was really good about setting structure and routine in his lessons. Whereas Dale was very, you come in, he says, what do you want to play for me today? My first teacher was, this is what we're going to work on next week. Have all these practice for the week. So, that was one way of holding myself accountable and creating a routine for my practice sessions. The second one was, um, 
actually flying out once a month and committing money and time to go study with him once a month. That way I, I had to practice. I was wasting money. I was wasting my time having all those opportunities to, to maybe do other things, maybe work bartend a little bit more, make a little bit more money. I was, I was wasting that if I wasn't practicing and going out. So finding ways to hold myself accountable um, for things that I want by getting other people involved mm-hmm. um, really helped me kind of get started again until I created the routine of practicing every day. Um, cause when I wasn't practicing every day, when I was bartending, I would, you know, when you're playing every day and then you don't play one day, you know, you notice it, you know, that right. it's happening. I would get sick. I would, I would get like physically sick in like my stomach if I didn't practice and I meant to practice. But when I was bartending and I wasn't playing every day, I would say, I'm going to practice today. And then I would forget and go, oh, oh, well, well, I'll practice tomorrow. And then five months down the line, I realized I hadn't played. So finding that accountability is really important for me. Um, Then the second one for me was setting goals. I'm also really bad at setting goals. Um, I don't look really far into the future. I'm much more of a nostalgic I look in the past all the time, which had made this injury so much harder. (laughs) Um, But I basically set long-term, I set goals. So my, my, my monthly goals were, you know, be prepared for this lesson, be prepared for this lesson. But I set a goal at every year mark for three years. My first, I'm trying to remember what my first year goal was. So after my first year, I think I said that I wanted to, feel comfortable reaching out to people that I gigged with in the past and say, you know, I'm, I'm back. I'm not necessarily gig ready, but can I start playing for you? Um, my second year goal was to be in a position where I felt comfortable gigging, um, on a regular basis. And then my third year goal was feeling comfortable enough to play with any group that I played with in the past um, CSO and Lyric included, um, pretty much any group I'm, I'm back. I'm ready to play. Um, I still don't feel like I've reached my third year goal now. Um, now over three years back, but Mm -hmm. I mean, around that time was when I joined, uh, maybe it was my second year goal. Like I I lose track of time, especially during coronavirus. I can't remember what day it is, (laughs) but, um, Around the time, whatever, whether it was year one, year two, or year three, around the time that I said I wanted to start playing with a regular group um, was when I joined Axiom. And um, that was a huge, huge risk on my part. Just you had said before about playing in a brass quintet, how not only is that playing again, but that's intense playing on a regular right. basis. And I was really, I was pretty worried about it. But ultimately, I think playing with Axiom saved my career because I think I was at that point where I just was going to stop playing. I was going to say, hey, I, I, I gave it a shot. It's not working. Um, and when I started playing with Axiom, you know, rehearsals two times a week, three times a week sometimes and preparing for concerts at the level that, you know, a chamber ensemble needs to perform, it, it motivated me emotionally, musically, physically, all of these things where I, I was really, I'm not really sure what happened. I just, I, I was motivated to, to really continue going. Um, yeah. So, so 
long story short, setting goals for yourself kind of on a, on a yearly basis. Cause it's, and having people there who can see the progress. That's another thing too. It's really hard when you're the only person who is, is trying to gauge your, um, success and failures because it's like a roller coaster. Every day is going to be different, but if there's the good thing about practicing is if you're doing it correctly, there's always an upwards trajectory. Even if that you play one day, you feel really good. The next day you feel bad. The next day you feel good is going to be higher than where you were before. Right, right. So having these people to check in with you, that was another thing about having this monthly, these monthly lessons was I didn't feel any better. I felt like I was staying the same or getting worse. And it was just really, really frustrating. And my teacher said, well, I'm only hearing you once a month. And I can, I can, it's very noticeable to me, the, the level at which you are going upwards mm-hmm. per month. To me, it felt, every day felt the same. I didn't think I was getting any better. Yeah. And that just built my confidence. I was, oh, okay, well maybe, maybe, you know, maybe I am. And that's kind of, that kept me going too. So I have two questions to sort of, uh, taper this off. Sure. Um, the first is, are there any reasons you are glad that this happened to you? It's a weird question, but you oh. know, sometimes these horrible things that happen in our lives teach us lessons that there's no other way we would have learned it and that in the long run, those lessons are important to have learned. I've told people this before. Um, I, I know that a lot of people say things happen for a reason. Personally, we don't need to get into this conversation, but I'm not a I don't, I'm not really a believer in that. I, I'm not necessarily happy that this had happened to me. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, there, you know, this has always been what I wanted to do. It's still what I want to do. Um, there are some benefits that come from it. If you can look for it. One is, I think that, um, with all that success at a young age and the, the inability to, really grasp any kind of perspective from other people's sides. Um, I, I think my ego was definitely, um, trending upwards. Um, I don't know if I ever showed it, but I know definitely things that were happening in my mind about other people's playing like judgments and things that, you know, at this position where I play now, I'm like terrified that if people would think the way that I thought about other people's right. playing and yeah. not know that it's, you can't just pick up the instrument and be good at it. Like you can't just pick it up and play. Um, I think another part of it that, that I could say, I'm glad that it, you know, if I were to say that I'm glad that it happened was I, I never really worked for what I had. I, I feel like I practiced every day, but things just worked. Um, Dale would say it needs to be this way and I would either do it in the moment or the next week I would have it. And I wouldn't have really worked on it other than just kind of playing it over, you know, kind of by rote almost. Yeah. And that also, I think made me a really, not a great teacher. Um, I still don't think I'm a great teacher cause I'm still figuring out a lot of things on my own, <laughs> but there are things that I'm able to figure out that I feel can be beneficial to other people now. Um, and Back then, I I would have no clue in terms of technical teaching um, how to guide somebody. Yeah, I. It's so funny how I didn't get injured, but we've had it. Like I didn't get tenure in Indianapolis, right? Right. And then um, that was like a pivotal moment. Like 
I am glad that that happened to me because it led me over here to Alabama and then now I'm like married and all that kind of stuff. So I have, I do, I do carry that perspective that I am glad that it happened, but it did teach me, like you said, the, the things about identity, like you put so much into your instrument and like, I know who I am outside of the trumpet now. Like, that's like, that's something that nobody can take away from me. And then also, yeah, just the idea that like, because I wasn't, you know, in Chicago or something like that, where you're playing all the time and ever, you know, you just like, are like, I know what I'm doing. Like, I don't know if that's what it's like. Cause I don't, I don't know what it's like to be there, but I do know that where I am, I had like time to think about stuff. Cause we're playing like Beethoven all the time. And I started to realize like, if I don't set my own goals, this job is not inherently going to push me in that direction all the time. Yeah. Um, and, I, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, to just to finish that thought, that led me to like, well, how do I get better? Like if I'm the one that's driving it and I don't have someone else helping me or I don't have like repertoire driving it or just the demands of like external pressure driving it, like how do I get better? And that led me down this road that I'm at right now where I understand significantly more about what's going on in terms of structuring practice, how to break down things on the trumpet. And like, I'm so glad for that, right? It's like mm-hmm. kind of what you're describing. I'm so much more effective of a teacher now than I was because normally I would just have to like play it and be like, just do it that way. But now I can play it as a demonstration as part of the whole. It's just, I, I feel very similar, even though I didn't have a similar experience. I didn't really realize that it kind of led you to a similar place to where I feel like I ended up too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not to be a downer, and this is something we don't have to use in the podcast, but <laughs> I, it's definitely, I, I, I wish that it had never happened to me because I'm still dealing with, you know, eight years down the road, I'm still dealing with serious confidence, confidence issues, not even with my playing because, um, we talk so much about how just everything is music, right? Like my, those two worlds are so the same thing to me that the confidence in music directly affected my confidence in life and, and just everything. And, and the fact that I don't feel comfortable or like that I didn't feel comfortable or that I'm having issues or whatever, I feel like it directly relates to my, my life, my attitude, my personality, all of that stuff that um, it's just hard to separate. I think when, when I was playing on a regular basis, I had something that I was good at and or when I was playing before I had something that I was good at and that people looked up to me for, and it helped build my confidence. When I stopped playing and I went to bartending, I had, um, that confidence of somebody that being of being good at something. I was working at a really popular restaurant. People could come in and look up to me. People respected me, all of that stuff. And then when I stopped bartending and I just had music again, and I was basically just trying to work up and sound decent. Like I just had, I, I did, I lost that feeling that I'd had for so long, whether it was multiple uh, different, um, you know, hands in the pot, but I had lost that feeling of being good at something and having people look up from up to me and being respected in whatever field I was in. And that, that's been, you know, that had a big effect in my relationship at the time, my, my happiness in general and other parts of my life, my motivation, stuff like that was, was really, really tricky. Yeah, man. I mean, I wanted to play in an orchestra. I know this now, right? I wanted to play in orchestra because of the way that I saw people who were in big orchestras, Mm -hmm. right? Like I wanted that recognition or I wanted people to look at me and be like, that guy is awesome, right? 
And it's just like, it was so skewed, my reasons for wanting it. It wasn't like I loved orchestral music, you know? And then going to Tanglewood was something that was like that. It was like, oh, you're like up here in this like little club or whatever. I went to Tanglewood. <laughs> yeah. And that felt cool. But like, I think, I don't know if you would agree with me. We can have a conversation about it. It's just like not real, you know? Like yeah. that's not like real interaction with actual people. You know what I mean? That's why I was interested about your perspective of not not having musician friends because like we all understand that world. And I know other places, other fields have their version of the exact same thing. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I think like we can talk ourselves into this thing of like, what we do is like so important and we have to like spend hours and hours and hours doing it. And if you don't, then you're not trying hard enough. And like other people are like, ah, like I play the guitar. Do you want me to play a, you know what I mean? Like, it's not the same thing. And so I think it's like when talking, you go to a party and they say, play me a song. You're like, I play French horn. Like, yeah, it's I'm not gonna play the you same, a song. Right. But I think when we're I think when we're in that world and we're in this world and surrounded by it at all times, like it's so easy to play mind games with yourself and tell yourself things that are true that aren't based in reality. Yeah. And it's really dangerous. I I would always I've never dated a musician. Um, I always tell myself like I would always joke that, okay, well, like, no, I'm not going to date a musician because musicians are too eccentric and you have two musicians in a relationship. That's a problem. But I think my real, my real, the real reason why I would try to not date musicians is because the perspective from both sides, if, if, and the, the ability to kind of grow with each other, where if I'm dating some, so if I'm dating somebody who isn't a musician, there's so much more that I get to learn outside of the world of music, but there's also so much that I get to share with somebody who maybe doesn't know much about it that um, that is willing to learn and kind of give that excitement to them. But yeah, like being able to kind of separate yourself as well and say, you know, have a part of your life that is not music at all. It's really hard. And I feel like the girls that I date, I tend to get them way too into music to, <laughs> I don't know if it's my fault or not, but I just, I'm, I'm just so excited about it. But there's still that other side of it that they're not musicians and, you get to hang out with their friends who aren't musicians and just separate yourself for a second. Not saying so who, that dating a musician is wrong, but right. It's so wrong. who who are you? Who are you outside of the horn? Like, what are some things that you got from that perspective and that time of your life? Like, if it's weird to answer that question for yep. me, but I don't know if there's anything that comes to mind that's like I learned this about myself when I got to actually like slow down and think outside of just doing the thing that I always did. I learned that I have a lot of other skills that, you know, I think that I'm intelligent enough to be able to apply myself in other positions and other areas other than music. Um, when I was bartending, I learned that I was a good conversationalist and that I was good at sales. Um, as long as you're passionate about what you're selling, it's really easy to sell people on it. Um, especially if you are able to speak in a way that, that is charismatic or believable. Um, when I worked at the restaurant that I was at, um, it was called the gauge and it was on Michigan Avenue, right downtown, across the street from the parks, right near all the hotels and the food and drinks. I believed in everything that the owner and the chef and the, the spirits director and everything were pushing. And I was genuinely excited to get somebody. I wasn't trying to upsell by saying you should buy this elk rack, which is $60 versus that burger that you were going to get. That's $18. That wasn't my mindset. Uh, my, my genuine mindset was 
you're coming to this place to enjoy the experience. There's nothing better on the menu and no way that you would enjoy the experience better than this elk rack and this bottle of wine that I can pair with that. Like that is going to be an awesome experience being in a restaurant that's busy, exciting, right in the heart of the city. It was just really easy to sell. Um, away from that also just kind of more, more business experience, um, and kind of learning that through Axiom, even without, um, away from the music side of it. I think that I can separate myself a little bit and learn a little bit more about, I still have a lot to learn, but uh, a lot more about the business side of it. Um, sales, running a group, um, interacting with people who aren't musicians. Um, there, I've, I've interacted with a lot of people who, who are owners or, or directors or whatever of arts organizations who aren't musicians, who, who were never musicians, who just like music and being able to kind of see their side of it and try to get in their heads and, and how they, why they would want to run, um, certain things. I had one person I reached out to and they, it was a chamber music festival and I was slightly insulted, but they said, I said, you know, we, there's brass quintet, we play this music, uh, yada, yada, yada. And she sent me an email back that said, oh, we're, we only have, we're only, what did she say? We're a chamber festival. We only hire chamber groups. And like, I was like, okay, the, well, there's no way that this person is actually a, a, a musician unless she just plays like piano on the side. And her mindset was, I understand, was string quartets and piano trios and piano mm. solos, right? Yeah, but, yeah. But brass quintet is a chamber chamber, chamber ensemble. I yeah, totally. What, you know? <laughs> I think chamber music is a fairly broad topic. It's not <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's string quartets. That's it. Okay, yeah. well, I guess we're not the right the right fit for you. Yeah, man. Something you just said. I, I think for me, it's like something I wish I could just tell the entire world, but I'll tell whoever's listening on this podcast episode. One of the biggest fallacies I've believed in my entire life for such a long time is that my gift, my skill in life is playing the trumpet. And that is so false. Playing the trumpet is a result of me applying skills that I have to a particular discipline, right? Yeah, totally. it's not. It's not like, oh man, like here's like, I could just do the trumpet and that's like it, right? It's like, I have a... Like I was blessed with a good ear and I have a brain that can learn. And like, I had time to do that. Like there's so many things about my life that were, I could do and do that thing. And then it's a result of that. But then that means just like you said, if you took it outside of music and applied it somewhere else, there's no reason that you couldn't be successful doing a different thing completely. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and then just, you get to that point where you have to make that decision. That's, that's the hardest thing was, was, Getting to the point where you need to make the decision where I know I can be successful at something else. That's not the question. It's, it's what I want to do. And, you know, whether or not it's music, it's, it's making that decision of if I need to make a change, am I actually happy doing what I'm doing now? Knowing that if I end up doing something else, I can be as successful, if not more, uh, more successful because of my upbringing, my education, um, being a musician in general. I mean, a lot of musicians, almost every musician that was even in my high school band class went to four year colleges, like almost every single one of them. Yeah. There's something, there's something about, I wrote a, a paper in college about developing cognitive skills as a, as a child playing in, in a music instrument. Um, there's something about musicians that just have skills. I drove Uber 
I drove Uber and I drove this guy who said that he hires, it's not a music company, but he hires musicians specifically because of, of skills that they've learned in music that they can apply in, I can't remember what job he had, but, um, it was, yeah. I was like, Oh, let me have your card. Let me, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just in case this doesn't work out, I'll give you a call. Yeah. I, I think it's so important to recognize that if like, you know, the answer now, because you've gone through all of this, like basically all of this suffering and heartache and you've come back to, yes, if I could be successful in anything and I have experienced success elsewhere, like, you know, if I come back to it and give it my all, like, I know that I know that answer versus before. And it's the same thing with me. Like, that's why I'm making some of these shifts is because I'm starting to question why I made that original decision. I'm starting to wonder if like, that's what I really wanted. Or if I made that decision, cause I just didn't know any better. I didn't know what the options were. I didn't even believe, I didn't even know who I was at that time and what I was capable of. Or if Let you were, alone, or if you were inadvertently pushed in that direction as well. Yeah. Right. And so I, I mean, I'm not, it's all swirls around. I think all things work together to ultimately push you in the direction you're going to go in your life. But, you know, I, I totally understand. And I think it's something I wish, yeah, I wish I could just say all the time and I wish I could encourage people with is it's just like, just know that if you're playing an instrument and that's the thing that you do, that's not like your skill. That's not your gift. That's not like what you have to offer this world. That's a result of things that you've been given or that skills that you have and you're choosing to apply it there. And if that's your choice and that's what you want to do, more power to you. But if not, you're not like locked into doing this thing. You know, you can, to me, sorry to rant for a second, but to me, first and foremost, a musical instrument should enrich our lives. And then if we can then turn it into a career because we put in the time and the effort necessary to do so. That's almost like a secondary thing, but I just feel so many musicians, it doesn't enrich their lives. It's just, we're on this grind mm-hmm. because we are like, well, there's nothing else that I could do. Yeah. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. First and foremost, I've had talks with people who have thought about quitting and going and doing other things. There is nothing wrong with playing the instrument because you love playing the instrument. Like, I mean, everybody should do that, right? You should play the instrument because you love playing the instrument. There's nothing wrong with having the opportunity to play the instrument because you love playing the instrument and do something else that you can do to make money or whatever, or that you also enjoy doing. But we, we get in this position, I think with most professions where you event, you, you get into it and, I think that's why there's so many jaded musicians out there. And, and something that I loved about Dale was that he was just as passionate about playing in the symphony 40 or 50 years later than he was when he first started. But there's just, we get to this point where we're grinding so much that it's no longer fun. It's just a grind, as you said. And yeah, having the ability to take a step back and say why you're, why you started it in the first place, you know, yeah. base perfect. It's athletes. It's the same thing. Athletes come in and they, there are a lot of athletes who play until they're 50 years old and that's great. And they love the game. There are a lot of other athletes that you may maybe don't even hear of who stop playing after a year or two, even if they've made it all the way, because they realize they've reached the point where it's no longer fun and they're just making money. However, it's probably easier to <laughs> yeah. to go through that when you're making millions of dollars versus when you're not making any money as a struggling, poor, starving yeah. musician like me. <laughs> yeah. And like, uh, I just think it's such an important conversation to like exactly what you said. Like, 
what just what's your why? Like, why are we doing this? Like, why? Because it's a lot of effort and it's a lot of rejection as you. And then the like to, for your story to me is so interesting because it's like you hit you were basically at the top. Like you, of course, didn't quite hit that thing you were looking for, but you were basically right there. Mm-hmm. It was any time now. And then through no fault of your own, at least to your knowledge, right? Other than like, maybe, <laughs> other than maybe over ambition, but yeah, right. Like that, that you, it was taken away, but now you're, now you're back. Now you're doing It's like, because you know, your why, you know that about yourself. And it's just, even if it doesn't change anything about you, you like think about it and then you say, okay, my why is this? And your life is exactly the same. Like you, no one will be harmed by trying to figure out really, why am I doing this? Why am I putting in all the hours? Is it because like a teacher wants me to? Is it because like, this is like what I've always done. I just think it causes so much anxiety to, to really to not know and feel like you're just going through the motions. Yeah. I mean, I still have those, those moments, um, of constantly thinking, am I doing the right thing? And, um, I know that when, before, when I used to perform, uh, I loved performing all the time. Didn't matter how I felt. I was always excited to be on stage and feel like I was sharing what I had with other people. Now it, it varies. Sometimes I go on stage and I'm like terrified. I, I don't feel confident in myself. I don't feel like um, I can go out there and do it. Other times, yeah, like I'm, you know, when my chops are feeling good, I'm I'm ready to share what I can with people and make music with colleagues. It's a it's a really hard, you know, it's a it's a strange position to be in. Yeah, and you're talking about uh, you know musicians being jaded, and I think when we don't know our why and we get into it for the wrong reasons, and then you try to like sustain that over the course of a career, it's pretty easy to see how we would feel. We get to a point where we're just over it, and we're just showing up, we're just doing the job because that's our job. And I think we need for orchestras, not necessarily even in terms of like survivability or for them to thrive, but just for people like sitting in the audience to believe that we love what we do. Like we have to act like we have to potentially love and people in orchestras should love what they do. They should mm-hmm. be like, this is like what I feel like I'm doing. And we need people who are passionate about that thing. And like, that's like, I'm not sure where I stand in all of that. You know, it's a weird place to be. I'm not sure where I stand. And that like, when you are questioning what you feel like you've believed your entire life, it's kind of weird, right? Yeah. That fits, that fits in a lot of, a lot of scenarios in this world right now, for sure. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I think it's ultimately a good thing to think those things, but you know, to be able to be a positive force wherever you go, I think you have to believe that that's where you're, you're supposed to be there basically. Like Mm -hmm. that's the thing you're supposed to be doing. And um, I I'm just by your story, I'm just encouraged, you know, because who knows if we were in the same position, if we'd be able to come back or if we would have handled it better or worse, you know, it's like, nobody knows, but to know that you like allowed yourself to just like feel your feelings and like, you know, what, I'm just going to like not do that for a while. Yeah. And just like found stuff out about yourself. Like maybe you wouldn't have found those things out and maybe you'd be a jaded musician seven years into your career doing the same thing. So yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's awesome, man. I'm really good at feeling my feelings. I cry in Pixar movies all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Which one's your favorite? Favorite Pixar? Yeah, if you can pick one. Oh man, I mean, that's that's a really hard question, dude. I mean, mine's Coco. Pretty, yeah, Coco is good. Mine's a pretty. It, it's pretty clear for me which one the best one is. It's Let's inside. Hear. Inside Out's the best one. Oh, that's a good one too. Yeah, yeah. Bing Bong. Oh, 
Dude, it's like so real, you know, basically like what we were just talking about when you just trying to force yourself to only feel happy and to recognize that complexity of emotion where like, maybe I feel sad, but like that thing led to a happy moment because somebody comforted me or whatever it ends up being. It's just, they like nailed it right on the head that we should feel our emotions. We should let ourselves feel our feelings, you know? Yeah. Wally and Up are pretty good too, but I saw yeah. I saw Coco like the week after my grandma passed away, so that was uh, no. pretty powerful. It was actually yeah. really hard to watch, but uh, yeah. yeah, I have a I have a pretty powerful connection to that movie. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I love all those Pixar. They're just like killing it. I feel like in the storytelling oh, yeah. department. You see the new the new trailer is Soul. It's about a jazz jazz teacher. Yeah, I've seen the the trailer. Yeah, but I have uh, it's. Yeah, I appreciate you being so open, so honest, man. I know you're used to it, but um, it's, you know, for people to be able to hear. I do have a few more questions. Yeah. Um, mostly just about um, if somebody, basically if somebody wanted to, like, get in touch with you if they are injured and they're looking for support or if some words that you've said, they're like, Oh my gosh, that's like what I'm feeling. And I didn't even know. Are there other ways that people can, are you willing? And if you are, are there ways that people get in touch with you to kind of bounce some ideas off of you? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've talked a lot with people in person that, that I've known or am friends with, or even just ran into, um, gigging who said I'm, I'm having some issues. I don't know how much advice I can give. Um, cause everybody handles things differently. Um, I can kind of tell my story and, and try to motivate in, in a way that people can, you know, take it, take it as they get it. But yeah, I'm absolutely, if anybody wants to reach out to me, um, they can reach out to me at my, uh, email address, um, Matthew at axiom brass.com M A T T H E W. Um, I'm more than happy to listen, um, and kind of share my perspective. Yeah. Do you, then the very, very last question I was going to ask is, it goes along with this, like sort of um, what you said about sharing and hoping that it could possibly help. This is going to be a weird question, but do you feel any responsibility of 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 sharing? Like, are you sharing just because you feel like it's a good idea, or do you feel like it's a bit of a responsibility to like try to pay it forward at all? Do you feel any of that, or or no? I there's no right answer. I'm just kind of curious. I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way before, but I I you know since you brought it up, I think that maybe, um, there's a little bit of a responsibility. Uh, I think that because there's such injuries are like on the taboo list and because the more people I talk to, the more I realize that it's happening a lot actually right now. I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's studies to show that, but it seems like it's happening more now than it had happened in the past. Um, I do feel like we still don't hear enough about it. Um, and I'm wondering if raising awareness as to what's going on can lead more people to be interested in pursuing it for science, scientific reasons, medical reasons, trying to figure out why this happens, not necessarily even for a cure, but just to figure out why it happens and what actually happens. Um, I'd never thought about it actually as a, that I, I have a responsibility. Um, I'm happy to take that responsibility. I think that it, it turns into a vanity project if you tell yourself that you have the responsibility to do it. And that's not the reason that I am doing it. I'm not, I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I don't want people to, um, think that, you know, 
I, you know, I don't know. I just, I think that putting a title on it and saying that I have a responsibility makes it seem like it's about me and it's not about me. Yeah. I just, the only reason I ask is just, you know, for you to have come through it and the way that you have, but also being someone who can be a conversationalist, someone who is happy to share. I just wondered if that felt like, well, like you have the ability to share. You're not afraid to share. Like you were saying, you were open and honest about your injury. I've talked to other people, like you said, they felt like they needed to not tell people that things were happening because they were afraid of the potential career um, ramifications, I suppose, or their perceived career ramifications. And so I was just asking, I mean, maybe you, like you say, you don't feel about it as a responsibility, but feeling like I can share about this. And so that I should, that maybe from that perspective. Yeah. I think that's another reason why I wanted to write that article that I wrote was just sharing the story and whoever reads it can feel, and whoever reads it, who has felt things like that and haven't heard anybody um, have that reaction and that response can at least find solace in um, knowing that other people have gone through it. You're not alone. The things that you feel, the emotions and the, the, the nights that you just can't sleep and the, all those things have happened to other people. You might not hear about it, but they happen to a lot of people. People don't and know yeah. how to deal with it, but they happen to a lot of people. And it seems like an unfortunate reality is we just, it seems like the, the amount that I've talked to people that were, we just sort of accept whether it's sort of career ending injuries or maybe it's like back pain or like <laughs> postural related, right? Like just injuries in general as that's just the way it is. Like it's, quote, normal or something like that. And I think, like you said, the more we can talk about it, the more we can sort of try to figure out, or maybe someone's had an experience that your words put something to them and then they figure out something that would help you out, right? Just having the conversation is the first place to start about trying to figure out how we can make it more normal to have ways to combat and prevent. Preventative. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the biggest thing that, that, it's using using people, unfortunately, who have gone through it and finding ways to for other people who haven't gone through it to prevent it from happening in the first place. And the only way for that to happen is for, unfortunately, people to go through it. But they also need to share. Right, right. Well, this is definitely one step in that direction. So like I said, I appreciate uh, you being willing to share Hopefully it uh, hopefully it was helpful for people and interesting to listen to. Um, I will link those your email and um, I'll link some of the axiom related stuff to trying to get that that article if people want a little bit more information in your writing. Just that journal um, or the it's a journal or what we yes, yeah, so what it's do you guys a call it it's an online publication that's it's um, it's called Brass Legacy. And it's the the project in general is much larger than just the publication. The publication is actually one of the smaller aspects of it, but it's the most time consuming. And it's the one that we have been releasing recently. Um, And it's a journal online publication, whatever you want to call it, that focuses, everything focuses on the art of brass chamber music. Um, We do interviews and article, we do interviews with uh, composers and brass chamber musicians. We do opinion pieces with composers and brass chamber musicians Um, we do, uh, we have usually a hidden gem section, which highlights and kind of analyzes, uh, lesser known brass chamber works. Um, we actually just finalized a, uh, a board of advisors with some pretty awesome names on it. Some former American brass quintet players, um, some, 
some pretty big names, which we're really excited about. Hopefully we'll release that soon. But in that publication, I wrote an article, um, in one of the publications, I wrote an article about, um, my injury experience. So I'm happy to send you all that information if you want to link that below. And Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, anybody who's interested in the injury, most of this episode is obviously focused on on your injury, but just uh, there's a wealth of, of knowledge about um, just brass chamber music in general and the fact that this is, for a lot of people, hopefully if you desire an orchestra job, like you can go get that. But as Axiom is proving and many other groups that are are popping up, like this is a very viable way to make really high level music with people that you care about and to be able to serve communities through music, right? Like it's not, it's not like a secondary option of like, I didn't win an orchestra gig. I guess I'll have to start a quintet, but rather I, I assume you guys are really trying to be at the forefront of saying like, this is an equal opportunity as of anything else that's out there. And you're trying, it seems like trying to provide materials and resources to help further that cause. Yeah, I think it's about being an advocate for that that other alternative, quote unquote, right? The alternative path. Um, I think I don't. How much time do we have, Ryan? Just real quick. I don't know if that's infinite. Okay, good. <laughs> so I think that um, a lot of times at universities, as brass players, we are trained to go one path. We are trained to go become orchestral musicians, and. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the comparisons, the relationship between brass players in chamber music and the relationship between string players in chamber music solo in education in general. Um, there are very few, when you think about residencies at universities, almost every university or at least every major string quartet has a residency at a major university, not a week long residency. They're in residency there for years. Mm -hmm. But whenever a brass quintet has a residency at a university, it's for a week, five days. Why, why is that? Because the, the culture of universities and the, the culture, not saying this is wrong, but the culture is pushing brass musicians towards the orchestral job. And there just aren't enough jobs orchestrally to meet the supply of young, you know, hungry students who are all really talented, who want to play in an orchestra. There, there needs to be an opportunity for them to learn other than just trying to pass brass, you know, a chamber music credit to graduate. There needs to be opportunities for them to understand that um, they can create the job that they want, as opposed to just winning the job that they think they need. Yeah. Um, so, you know, creating, creating more curriculum for and, and advocating for brass chamber music um, in schools like string players do in schools. There should be no difference. All the, all the string players who go to university want to study or are told to study or have no choice but to study with chamber musicians and soloists. And brass players, for the most part, study with orchestral musicians or former orchestral musicians. I think it's changed a little bit watching people like, you know, um, Jeff Nelson, Bernard Scully, Adam Unsworth, people who are um, really aren't known to be orchestral musicians. They've made most of their success and fame from teaching and doing solo or chamber works um, is a step in the right direction for sure. I would argue this is going to be a very bold thing. I hope you're not offended by this, but I would say that I think a big part of the reason 
string quartets would be more prominent, more serious, I suppose, is because they have works by Beethoven and Bach and Shostakovich. And we have not nearly, and this is a problem for all of brass instruments because we came along later, just that we don't have nearly the depth of repertoire. Um, and so I know that you guys are on the the forefront of, you know, as most brass quintets should be of trying to expand the repertoire. But what do you guys feel like is your responsibility in that? And how are you going about doing that to try to create more great repertoire so it can become a thing where we have such a vast thing to choose from rather than like we'll play a ways in or yeah. like a few other pieces. This is a fantastic lead in. Um, I, I promise all the listeners, I didn't pay Ryan for this. So it was just a great lead in. We, um, so speaking of brass legacy, so Axiom, of course, we, we try to do our commissions. We try to, um, make sure that we can advocate for living what we call living music, music by living composers. That's relevant and, and pop, you know, try to be popular for the era for, for the day with brass legacy. Um, the, the main component of Brass Legacy is a, a sort of modern day commissioning consortium where um, ideally we would partner with um, universities, music schools um, who would uh, become members of the Brass Legacy partnership. We're still working on the language, but uh, they would pay for a yearly subscription. And with the funds that we get from these universities, we would be commissioning four new works every single year that would be mass distributed to every subscribing member of brass legacy. So, I mean, you think about how much it costs to commission one work and universities are, are spending, depending on the size of the university, anywhere from 400, 600, $450 to $650 a year to get four brand new brass chamber works. And that's for any combination, brass quintets, trios, uh, trombone quartets, stuff like that. Um, and in this era of hyperconnectivity, we really have the opportunity to make sure that one group doesn't commission a piece. It, it's played or recorded one time, maybe not even recorded, most time not recorded, and then put on a shelf somewhere where nobody's ever able to play it again. And they spend thousands of dollars on that one piece that nobody's going to hear or play. So Brass Legacy, we're, we're, you know, we're really excited at the prospect of being able to produce and, and get, you know, get connection with these universities to allow the brass music world, the brass chamber music world to not only create more quality works, but really the quantity of works and the mass distribution, allowing anybody to play it. If, you know, if they are a member of a subscribing university or, or what have you. What's the uh, time frame for this? Do you have one? Yeah, so we are actually going to start sending out emails very, very soon. Um, we needed a uh, we needed to figure out some coding issues with the website um, to allow uh, university libraries to allow, allow students to sign in with their um, university library um, passwords to be able to reach uh, the website. But um, by the by the end of September, I have been told that there's a possibility, most likely, that it will be up and running the website. And we'll start reaching out to universities as soon as possible. Um, our website is active right now. That's where you can get the publications and kind of learn more about the project. Um, and if anybody's interested or want to learn more, if there are faculty members or students who want to get their faculty members involved at their universities, um, they can reach out to me at, at Matthew at axiombrass.com as well. 
Um, cause we do feel speaking of responsibility, we feel like there's a huge responsibility to be able to create. There's some incredibly popular, famous composers today who in 300 years could potentially be Mozart's and Beethoven's of the time. And we, as a new and exciting, um, medium as brass chamber music have the opportunity to rival the string output of the times of Mozart and Beethoven. We can absolutely do that. We just need to make the effort and kind of create this, all these different types of music that kind of go beyond just um, the classical romantic era that could be popular in 300 years. Yeah. What's cool about this to me is it's sort of like a, I don't want to call it a one-stop shop, right? But if someone's hoping to be a part of, uh, making this a thing, making more brass chamber music uh, happen to be created, but they themselves may not have the resources to be able to do it. Maybe like supporting this or being a part of this is a way that they can do it. So if you're reaching out to schools for this particular like subscription based thing, are there way there are there ways for like, um, like me to be able to support this endeavor as well? So, uh, yeah, so we have different, um, levels of, uh, subscription. One is the, uh, music university, uh, level, uh, which includes all active students, anybody who has like a login for their university library. Um, then there's another level that includes chamber ensembles that can, um, basically pay a subscription as a complete ensemble. And then there's an individual level as well. Um, the individual level will have access to everything that Brass Legacy has to offer with the exception of the commissions for now. Um, we need to try to figure out a way to allow um, the individual members to be able to have access to the commissions. Um, they would probably be able to reach it at some point um, just because it, it'll be everywhere, hopefully. Um, but in terms of dis- like immediate distribution... Uh, the university level would be the the level that would be um, receiving those uh, for now. And then um, are there ways just for people to support Axiom just in general? Maybe they're like, I don't necessarily need brass quintet pieces for myself, but I see the value in doing that. Are there ways to support the group itself? Yeah, especially right now, considering, I mean, for all arts organizations, for all chamber musicians, music groups um, where we can't perform, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this is in the same boat. Um, We released a new CD in February called First Impressions, and it's five pieces that were um, commissioned by Axiom in 2016 before I was in the group um, to celebrate the 10th anniversary of Axiom. And it was a part of a project to commission 10 new works for the 10th anniversary. We recorded five of them. Um, It's a, we're incredibly proud of the product. Um, we had a piece that Augusta Reed Thomas wrote for us that is not easy, that um, we and she are very, very happy with how it came out. Um, so purchase the CD, First Impressions. We also have a, a partnership with uh, kind of the umbrella, not really sure how to explain it. It's a nonprofit organization uh, called Fractured Atlas, where we can accept donations since we are not a nonprofit Mm-hmm. Um, we can accept donations through Fractured Atlas. Um, so if you'd like to donate um, to Axiom to kind of go towards either educational projects, commissions, anything to um, help us continue our mission, um, you can find that at our website. So everything will be at axiombrass.com. Yeah. Yeah, to me, it just seems like if you're someone out there who maybe doesn't, you're not in a brass quintet or 
whatever, but you want to be able to support the creation of brass quintet music. And it's, it's just not just quintet, are, not just quintet. Well, you know, what I mean, just yeah. chamber music, brass chamber music yeah. is, is would be more accurate. But what I guess what I'm saying is that this is a major mission of your guys, of your, of what your group is. So it just would be a good way to support that. Even if you, like I said, you don't have the resources to like commission works all on your own or you don't know composers or whatever. So mm-hmm. uh, I would ha- highly consider supporting doing that kind of thing, um, whether it's through purchasing the CD or, or donating or being a part. I'll just link all of this information in the blog <laughs> post. And so you can cool. kind of sift around and decide what you want to do. But I just wanted to give you all the options just in case one of the or more of those ideas spoke to people. So thanks for all that information. Yeah. And a big, a big part of the, getting this advisory board set up with Brass Legacy is, you know, we have our, our contacts and our resources, but to be able to reach out and have other people also provide us with their resources and their contacts, we've created a list of probably 50 or 60, if not more composers that like we're ready to reach out and commission. All we need is the the funding to be able to get that going. And like I said before, for universities, a maximum of $650 for four commissions, you spend three to five to sometimes $10,000 on a commission. So um, yeah. if we can kind of create a community where everybody is chipping in and we can use our resources to release new all these new commissions, then everybody gets all of this stuff and doesn't have to pay $10,000 for a commission. Yeah, sounds like a good deal for, obviously that's the idea of a consortium. So it's- exactly. Hopefully people take advantage of that. Just wanted to make sure that info is there. Um, Do you have any final words just in general, like Matt Bronstein isms that you would, that you feel like are important that you wish to share with uh, my audience? I think it's something that I have to remind myself every day, um, especially with what I've gone through and where I am now is to just keep having fun doing it. It's, we, we talked about how difficult it is to, or how easy it is to kind of get into that grind mode and that mode of, I need to win a job now. I'm in my thirties now. I don't have a job. I need to win a job. And most of the progress that comes is just from enjoying what you're doing, you know, singing through the instrument, creating music, finding ways to play. I mean, in this time, finding ways to play duets with people in social, in a parks, you know, in any kind of social distance, just finding ways to have fun and make sure that you're enjoying what you're doing because it's really easy to step back or to get involved kind of too far, too deep and not be able to have that perspective of just stepping back and realizing that when we are able to work again, our office is a concert hall. That's our office. That's where we work. So enjoying what you do, um, being willing to help others, I think as well right now. Um, even if it's just listening, somebody is having a tough time being able to listen, being able to get people together in a park and sit and hang out socially distance or however you feel comfortable. Um, cause we're all, we're all going through this right now. There's not one person who's not having to deal with it. So yeah, I find that really interesting about the coronavirus. Like if you if you're somebody I, I'm fortunate that I my both of my parents are alive. I've never experienced like major loss. So people who have experienced major loss, it's hard for me. Like I can intellectually say I kind of understand that, but I've not experienced it. 
But this is like a level of, I mean, I'm sure some people are going to experience suffering on a different level. Like, I guess like Jeff Bezos made like a billion or whatever. You know what I mean? Like apparently those guys are doing pretty well right now. But for all of us down here, all of us mortals down here, this is something like we collectively have experienced all at the same time. We kind of like all understand to some extent what we're all going through. And so we can kind of potentially give each other a little bit of grace. I completely agree, man. I, I think it's great advice. Well, and our, our profession in general is the, we're in, we're in the unfortunate position that the demographic of audience goers for our profession are the ones who are at the most risk at the highest risk for yeah. coronavirus. So it's going to be a really long time before we're able to get back into a concert hall. And even when we get back into a concert hall, how long is it going to be before yeah. our audience feels comfortable getting together in a hall? So finding ways to be, as you said, creative away from playing the instrument and um, and having people who sh- can prove that they support the arts, even if they can't get necessarily the benefits immediately from the support of the arts. Like you yeah. pay to go to a ticket, you pay you pay to buy a ticket to go to the symphony to support the arts, but you get an immediate return. Kind of showing that right now that there are ways that you can support the arts where it's a it's a immediate 100% selfless act of just I support the arts. This is what I'm going to do to help you with donations, anything buying CDs, supporting the arts organizations especially because they're, they're the ones who are going to start hiring us again when we're able to play. And if they're not, if they don't have any funding, there's no way that we can be able to perform. So, um, being able to support the arts in other ways, other than just saying, well, I'm going to go buy a ticket so I can see a concert. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, dude. This is great to reconnect a little bit and have the chance to, to, you know, pick your brain uh, and hopefully provide some, just some meaningful information for people to, to digest. I really appreciate your time. It was absolutely my pleasure, Ryan. It's so good to talk to you again, man. Um, it's been way too long. Yeah, I know. That's my <laughs> fault, probably. <laughs> uh, all of our faults. Yeah, one of my favorite stories, I'll tell this really quickly. Not the Tanglewood one. I can't tell that one on my podcast. But Well, there are a lot of Tanglewood stories. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite stories, I visited, I don't know what year it was, like four years ago or so. Uh, I was visiting Chicago and... I hadn't seen you in like five years. And then you posted a status that was like, I'm like closing at the gauge. Come say hi. And I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go say hi. Like I'm the last person Matt is going to think is going to come to this, this bar. And when I got there, the door was closed. (laughs) And so I just stood out. I remember I just stood outside the window, just like staring in there. And it's one of the few actual double takes I've ever seen in my life. You looked and looked away, and then you were like, oh, my God. It was a beautiful moment. I'm so glad that I, I convinced myself. It was very cold. It was in the winter, so I'm glad I convinced myself to go out and do it. But Yeah, that was uh, – they're very rare. I mean, being in a bunch of different you know styles of work, it's very strange to have the worlds colliding yeah, in that right. scenario where I was probably the, – the, if the door was closed, I was probably like on my way out. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the night, you kind of just want to get home. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> wait, I know that person. Yeah, right. Well, so, yeah, it's just it's like I said, it's great to reconnect. So I appreciate your time. Um, my pleasure. If anybody needs to get in touch with me, you want to talk about anything or you want to say, hey, or you want to tell me that you think my voice sucks. I don't whatever. You can find me at that's not spit dot com. And uh, on Instagram and Facebook at That's Not Spit. 
if you enjoyed this episode or you want to leave a rating and review, I'd really appreciate that uh, on iTunes. And don't forget to share this on social media uh, so other people can find it. I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most importantly, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.